This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall. I'm here tonight with my colleague and co-host, Jeff Klein. Mike Yuseem is off tonight. And in the second hour, I'm really so pleased to welcome to the studio David Barnes, a professor here at Penn who teaches the history of medicine and public health, and he has a special story to tell about a local historic site called the Lazaretto. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Really a pleasure, David. So um, I might just, if I may, just ask you a little bit about the Lazaretto. Why don't we just go to the heart of the matter, and then we can work backwards a bit to your work and your research here at Penn. Yes. Well, the Lazaretto was built beginning in 1799 after a series of devastating yellow fever epidemics that struck mm-hmm. Philadelphia in the 1790s. And the city, which was the uh, nation's largest city, the busiest mm-hmm. seaport, and the nation's capital in the 1790s, mm-hmm. was absolutely uh, devastated. And it was unclear whether, not only whether the city could continue to be the nation's capital, but whether the city itself would survive. And yellow fever also struck other uh, Atlantic seaports in the United States around in the late 1790s and just after 1800. And it was a major local and national crisis. So there had been kind of piecemeal quarantine regulations that intercepted ships heading for the Port of Philadelphia and inspected them uh, in order to uh, in order to prevent the introduction of disease from overseas. But after the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s, it was clear that those measures weren't working. And it was thought that the existing quarantine station, the place where ships were stopped and inspected uh, on the Delaware River on their way to the Port of Philadelphia, was too close to the city. Hmm. And it was impossible to prevent people from the city from having contact with the ship's cargo and passengers and sailors on the ships that were undergoing quarantine. So in 1799, the Philadelphia Board of Health, which was established after the 1793 yellow fever epidemic, uh, purchased 10 acres of land in on Tinicum Island, just outside of uh, in Delaware County, just outside the current boundaries of the city of Philadelphia, and built a brand new state of the art quarantine station. It was on an island. It was easy to police comings and goings. And it was far enough away from the city that contact uh, between residents and people and ships undergoing quarantine could be prevented or at least tightly controlled. And yet it was close enough that you could get there and back in, uh, you know, in half a day or so. So this new quarantine station, which was called the Lazaretto, an Italian word indicating a an isolation hospital or quarantine facility, operated for uh, just about 100 years uh, through 1895 as the uh, quarantine station for the Port of Philadelphia. So, David, at the time you said it was state-of-the-art on what was understood as state-of-the-art at that time? There were a number of things that the Lazaretto had to provide or was perceived to uh, need in order to, um, in order to fulfill the Board of Health's obligation to the city. So um, it had to 
enact rigorous inspection and detention if necessary. It also had to provide care for sick people. Mm -hmm. And um, it was important. This was, you know, this was a a demonstration of uh, Christian charity and benevolence on the part of a uh, wealthy and ambitious community, the city of Philadelphia. And so a there had to be a, a hospital with uh, nursing facilities and medication and beds and bedding and food and drink and um, the kinds of facilities that would be, you know, the, at least the bare minimum required to care for uh, sick people. And not long after the this new Lazaretto opened in 1801, those facilities were sorely tested and there were mm. there was a, a, an overwhelming number of um, sick passengers and sailors arriving and needing to be cared for at the new Lazaretto. Mm. Wow. Jeff, do you want to chime in? I'll make some elbow room for you. Sure. <laughs> sure. I, I'm in full intellectual exploration <laughs> mode. Okay. Um, so, you know, David, you were starting to paint the picture a little bit of, of these yellow fever outbreaks. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just give us a sense uh, of, you know, we go back to 1799 or, or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are the contours of a public health epidemic at, at that yeah. time uh, mm-hmm. in history? Yeah. Well, this was like nothing that would be familiar to us today. Right. Um, in 1793, for example, which was one of the most traumatic uh, uh, epidemics uh, really in the, in the history of the nation, Philadelphia, the population of Philadelphia was estimated to be about 50,000. Mm-hmm. And in the space of two months, 10% of the city's population was killed. Okay. Oh, wow. 5,000 people. If you mm. extrapolate that right. to today's population, a city like Philadelphia, that's yeah. something the scale of which cannot be imagined. It's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, many 9-11s, you know, yeah. over and over again right. over um, a, a two-month period. So, moreover, yellow fever was a uh, a dreadful disease. It was not only deadly, it was sudden and dramatic and kind of ghoulish in its symptoms. Uh, the early symptoms might seem relatively benign, uh, severe aches and pains and headaches and and, uh, backaches and and joint pain, followed by um, uh, intense fever and spikes of fever and chills. And then uh, in many patients, there's a lull in the symptoms after a couple of days. And the majority of patients, thankfully, recover, but in the serious cases, the symptoms come back after mm-hmm. three or four days and get much worse. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, jaundice, uh, oh. accounting for the name of the disease, yellow fever. The mm-hmm. you know patients' eyeballs turn yellow and bloodshot. Um, the one of the common nicknames for yellow fever was black vomit. Oh, black boy. vomit was. Oh. Really, the oh. as if yellow fever is not <laughs> enough. Yeah. Bad enough. Yellow right. fever is not bad enough. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the black vomit was really a a sign that the case was terminal, and in its later yeah. stages, this is a consequence of um, severe internal bleeding and yeah. dried blood accumulating in the stomach. And well, uh, and oh. I should ask the question on every <laughs> listener's mind right now. Can we still contract <laughs> yellow fever? Yellow fever still exists and is not uncommon in um, tropical parts of the world. Okay. And yellow fever is it's been uh, understood since about uh, 1900 that yellow fever is spread by the Aedes aegypti mosquito, which is oh. the same mosquito that spreads other viral illnesses such as Zika, mm. uh, chikungunya, uh-huh. and dengue fever. Okay. So it's a 
It's a dengue mosquito. fever is the bone crusher one? Yes, bone break fever. Yeah, bone break, break bo- sorry, break bone fever. This yeah. mosquito. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, and, and that's why, you know, in, in relation to the Lazaretto um, and, and and these epidemics that we're talking about, that it was mostly being brought to the United States from ships coming from tropical locations? Is yes. That- there were... Uh, in the 1790s and in the early part of the 19th century, there was vehement disagreement in the medical profession about the origins and causes and spread of yellow fever. Hmm. There were essentially two main camps. There were those who believed that yellow fever was spread from person to person. It was contagious, mm-hmm. spread by direct contact from person oh. to person, and was brought into uh, American seaports from the West Indies. Ah. And Mm -hmm. it was widely known that yellow fever was more or less endemic to large areas within the West Indies. Mm -hmm. The other camp believed that yellow fever could not be spread from person to person, that it originated locally in accumulations of filth, Mm. and that the and essentially these accumulations of filth contaminated the air under certain meteorological mm-hmm. conditions and under those conditions an epidemic influence arose which uh sort of spread throughout a community and could infect people with the disease so the um the debates oh, wow. were the debates were really uh, aggressive, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was no common ground at all, no sense of compromise. It I don't was, know what that feels like at all. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it was the stakes were so high; mm-hmm. it was an emergency. And I sometimes, when I'm talking with my students about this, they say, "Well, you know, the uh, people were dying. Couldn't they just like compromise and agree on something? And they couldn't agree on anything." And I and I tell my students. If you are certain that you know the answer and the stakes are really high and people are dying every day, are you going to say, well, you know what? I know the right answer, but you know what? I'll compromise. We'll try yours. Yeah, yeah, we'll try yours, which I know to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course not. So the the fact that the stakes were so high just ratcheted up the the sort of vehemence of of the arguments, and that was tremendously discouraging to ordinary Philadelphians who looked to doctors for Something, some kind of reassurance and some answers. Um, And the the two camp, eventually the the doctors who believed that the disease originated locally and could not be spread from person to person uh, won the day. In other words, the the doctors who believed in contagion, the contagionists Mm. uh, kind of fell silent or uh, stopped, stopped arguing their case. However, quarantine survived. The institution of quarantine, inspecting ships mm. arriving at the port and looking for signs of illness and detaining ships, cargo, and, pass- and or passengers uh, mm. on ships where there might have been warning signs, that continued regardless of the state of the debate among the doctors about whether yellow uh-huh. fever was contagious or not. Got it. And that's an interesting – well, for, for people in my line of work – uh, that's an interesting fact because it's generally been assumed that quarantine presupposes contagion. Mm-hmm. In other words, you wouldn't need you wouldn't need quarantine at all. You wouldn't need to inspect and detain mm-hmm. ships or cargo or passengers right. if the disease wasn't spread from person to person. Uh, however, um, my research has shown that in fact quarantine flourished and was advocated by people who did not believe in contagion. So oh, wow. the um I think the really uh I think the the nerdy details of this are pretty fascinating. Um yeah. and it it actually wasn't about contagion. It wasn't about the spread of disease from person to person. It was about a, a different a different worldview, a different way of experiencing the world in the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, in which Air could be contaminated from a variety of sources, and that contaminated air could actually be transported over long distances. For example, 
in the cargo hold of a mm-hmm. ship in mm-hmm. the summertime coming from a Caribbean port to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, an enclosed cargo hold, if it absorbed contaminated air in the endemic atmosphere of, you know, uh, a Cuban port, for mm-hmm. example, or a Jamaican port, it could come to Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Charleston, mm-hmm. and um, when the cargo was unloaded, that contaminated air could spread. And so, in, so in fact, the um, the folks who argued vehemently against contagion sometimes advocated quarantine. So interesting. <laughs> Let me remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein, and we have the pleasure of speaking with David Barnes about the Lazaretto. So, so David, all right, now, is it the case then, am I following you right, that with the yellow fever epidemic, when people came to the Lazaretto, the nurses and the doctors did not contract the Lazaretto because the mosquitoes did not also <laughs> arrive with the patients, or did the mosquitoes arrive with the patients? It's a great question, and um, it's hard to know for sure. Okay. It's, um, we can tell from the archival evidence that survives that the, the people who worked at the Lazaretto we're not dropping like flies from yeah. yellow fever. Yeah. Um, some did get sick and some did die. There was one noteworthy epidemic mm. in 1870, in fact, the last time yellow fever visited Philadelphia. Wow. There were um, – it. the disease broke out at the Lazaretto itself and the Lazaretto staff was decimated. Oh, wow. It was, uh, it was terrible and, and horrifying, especially since their yellow fever epidemics had been uh, – much fewer and uh, uh, much more infrequent uh, in the you know middle decades of the 19th century. In any case, the the ecology of yellow fever is interesting. Um, the mosquito, the Aedes aegypti mosquito, has a remarkably short um, radius of travel. Oh, it um, can fly you know a uh, couple of hundred yards at most during its lifetime. And the conditions of transmission of the virus that causes yellow fever, we now understand, are very particular. The mosquito feeds only in certain temperature ranges, Mm -hmm. um, only in certain times of day. The virus can be picked up by the mosquito from a human blood meal um, only at um, a certain point in the uh, mm. human patient's, uh, in the course of the human patient's infection. Right. And then the virus has to actually develop in the digestive system and of the mosquito and can only be transmitted to a new human subject at a blood meal at a certain stage in the virus's development. So what all of this, all of this, uh, scientific detail means is that um, you need, in order for a, a yellow fever outbreak to spread, mm-hmm. you need a large and highly concentrated, crowded population of susceptible human beings, mm-hmm. and you need a fairly large population of, e- of infected Aedes aegypti mosquitoes right. in very close proximity to that crowded human population. So um, at the Lazaretto, the ships were, uh, were presumably arriving mosquito um, populations were, um, were living and reproducing, were, um, were generally anchored in the river a um, quarter of a mile or more away from oh. the places where most of the uh, people who worked at the Lazaretto were spending their days. So um, the chances of infection were, you know, were always present. But just from the evidence we have, it wasn't very common. Yeah, but, but in 1870, I guess, as we might say, a perfect storm. Yeah. In, in 1870, it's clear in hindsight that some... Um, 
some fateful mistakes were made mm-hmm. by the Lazaretto physician at the time who who oh. died, who paid oh. the ultimate oh. price for uh, his misjudgment. He was a little bit um, he was a little bit lax in enforcing um, strict controls on who was allowed to enter the Lazaretto site, who was allowed to approach and unload the cargo from mm-hmm. this ship that had arrived from Jamaica that was, um, you know, one Lazaretto staff person described as the filthiest vessel he had ever seen in his life. Oh, boy. And um, this was this was a, a ship on which several crew members had died of yellow fever on the voyage to Philadelphia. Mm. And um, it ended up that quite a large number of uh, outsiders ended up arriving at the Lazaretto and having direct, very close contact with the ship, unloading yeah. the cargo, et cetera. Right. And then they, in turn, were allowed to uh, proceed back to the city. Oh, no. And oh. Um, and they spread oh. the disease. The total number of deaths, of cases and deaths, was nowhere near mm-hmm. the scale of what had happened in the 1790s and right. the early, early years of the 19th century. But um, given that yellow fever had been largely absent for mm-hmm. several decades, 1870 was shocking. It was yeah. a shock to the system. Oh, boy. Um, and, and devastating to the Board of Health because it was, mm. it struck right at the heart of their operations there at the Lazaretto. Oh, Wow. Jeff, do you have a follow-up on that one? Sure. So, David, you you had said the the Lazaretto was constructed by the Philadelphia Board of Health. Yes. Right. And was that a was that a controversial decision at that time? Was that something that was you know kind of matter of course? I mean, ten acres of land, state of the art facility. It was ambitious. Okay. It was ambitious. Nothing like it had been undertaken uh, in the United States, which is still a very young country. And in the uh, late 1790s, and it was a statement by Philadelphia: um, "We are the preeminent city in this new country. We are the nation's capital, although not for long, uh, because in 1800 the nation's capital moved to uh, Washington D.C." My daughter taught me about that after she saw Hamilton. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> 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 uh, but it was a it was an ambitious statement that uh, Philadelphia is remains the capital of medicine, of commerce, mm-hmm. and of um, the what I would call the American ideal. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's a charity institution. It's a uh, Public welfare institution. Yeah. It's a demonstration. The, the scale of the place, you know, the main building of the Lazaretto was one of the largest single structures in the country at the time. Mm. It's hard to it's, yeah. it's hard to figure out how to rank those sorts of things uh, given the historical evidence. But it was huge. Right. Mm-hmm. It was huge, and there was nothing like it anywhere else in the country. And um, it made a statement we are in control we have we have suffered these four horrible epidemics in a span of 6 or 7 years mm-hmm. and yet we are reasserting our control and um we are providing care we are a um we are a charitable benevolent community that is in control of mm-hmm. our destiny there were um there were concerns, understandably, about how much it would cost. Mm-hmm. Was and it the, publicly financed? It was publicly financed. Mm. And there were provisions um, incorporated into the health law, into the, the health law that created the new Lazaretto, that provided for um, the owners and captains of um, arriving ships to pay health fees upon mm-hmm. arrival, regardless <laughs> of the state of health of their ship. So every every ship that arrived and was inspected paid a health fee. Mm-hmm. Um, owners and captains were responsible for the medical care and room and board of patients who were admitted to the hospital at the Lazaretto. They were also responsible for any 
supplies and food that was provided to the vessels at the Lazaretto. So there were provisions for, um, you know, ongoing expenses mm -hmm. to be paid. But it was still a, a major a major investment, and the Board of Health was adamant that they would build a stately, beautiful, and efficient station with the utmost economy. Mm, that's so good. Well, we're going to take a short break here. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm speaking with Jeff Klein, and together we have the pleasure of speaking with David Barnes about the Lazaretto. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, hear more. This is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 11, 111. We will be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein. And tonight we have the pleasure of speaking with David Barnes, Associate Professor of History and Sociology of Science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Jeff, follow-up question. How psyched were you when that song came out? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that was Jack White, Lazaretto, right? I was quite excited. <laughs> <laughs> when did it come out? I want to say it was 2014. It was oh, uh, fairly good. recent. Yeah. Our producer says yes. <laughs> and um, as soon as I heard it, <laughs> I thought, what's going on here? And um, it turned out that Jack White, in fact, uh, read about the history of Lazarettos, of isolation really? hospitals and quarantine stations. And he had read some poetry and some really, you know, melancholy literature about Lazaretto's. Not surprisingly, the poetry and literature of isolation hospitals and quarantine stations is pretty melancholy. <laughs> and it's not all rainbows. No. no. <laughs> um, it's, not a, it's not a happy institution inherently. And he had written this song, and it was the title song of his album, Lazaretto. Wow. And, um, well, shortly after it came out, I thought this could be an incredible opportunity, yeah. and I'm, you know, I'm trying to um, spread the word and raise the public profile of the Lazaretto Historic Site and to preserve the site. So I managed to find the um, contact information for Jack White's publicists, and <laughs> I emailed them and I said. You know, we have this historic site called the Lazaretto. <laughs> I think this could be a great publicity opportunity for us and for you. Maybe a benefit concert or some kind oh, of event. Great. And um, I didn't expect to hear anything, but they did contact me fairly quickly and said, "Tell us more. What you know? What in the world are you talking about?" And I, I tried to explain a little bit more in depth and. Um, you know, I have no experience organizing benefit <laughs> concerts with major rock stars, but I, I tried to keep that vague and said, you know, this is a, a really unparalleled historic site. There's nothing like it anywhere uh, in the country, and uh, this could be an interesting opportunity. And they emailed me back several more times, you know, tell us more. We're interested. This is intriguing. And um, unfortunately, they ended up saying, not surprisingly, Jack White's schedule is too busy, yeah. and uh, oh. he can't he can't fit it in. But um, you know, maybe someday. So <laughs> so who knows? It's 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 it still could happen. And uh, I have you know I have those emails on file. <laughs> so great. And and maybe I mean Jack White could yeah, be listening. They, well. Yeah, they probably made a music video, but they could make a much better one, <laughs> they, right? They, they did make a music video, and uh, it's it's not bad at all. Uh, of course, I think that it would be enhanced by yeah. some, you know, uh, yeah, on-site footage. Yeah, <laughs> and now you said that this is on Tinicum Island. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, and is 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 that an island that's accessible now? Would, I'm trying to figure out if we all have to kayak to the show or how this is going to work. <laughs> yes, it's accessible. No, it's no longer an island. Oh, ah. got it. Okay. So um, in um, in that part of Pennsylvania, in um, Delaware County, just um, you know, just just across the the boundary from the city of Philadelphia today, um, there there is and was a kind of delta of creeks that flow into the Schuylkill and Delaware rivers. So there were 
a dozen or so small and medium-sized islands formed mm. by this delta of creeks. And one of the largest of them was Tinicum Island, um, which was formed by Darby Creek and Bow Creek, which was much smaller, um, flowing into the Delaware. Now, um, at some point in the early 20th century, Bow Creek was filled in. It's no longer an island. Um, it, the island status still survives in uh, street names like Island Avenue. Um, folks who are you know old timers in Tinicum mm-hmm. Township refer to their town as the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is still an island l- which is Little Tinicum Island, which is uh, in the uh, in the middle of the Delaware River, immediately opposite the Lazaretto. It's a fascinating place. It's um, it's completely wild. And um, it's easy to get to by kayak or canoe or rowboat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of the state forest system. Mm. And it's very small at high tide, was the Delaware's title at that point, um, as it is in the city of Philadelphia. And, um, and it's a little bit bigger at low tide. Uh, but it's a, actually a, a pretty amazing recreational and environmental education opportunity that's just a stone's throw from the Lazaretto Mm -hmm. itself and perhaps an opportunity for, um, you know, for uh, public recreation and activities at the site. Mm. In fact, that um, island acted as a kind of barrier island for the Lazaretto, didn't it? Yes. So the, um, and (laughs) still today, the, the, uh, the channel of the river between Little Tinicum Island and the Lazaretto is called the uh, Inner Channel. It's a it's smaller, narrower, shallower, and much calmer. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, it's much easier for recreational boating, for right. example, in the Inner Channel. On the other side of Little Little Tinicum Island, between that island and New Jersey, is the Outer Channel, which is where the um, large you know um, seagoing cargo ships okay. um, uh, go between, you know, the Port of Philadelphia and the Delaware Bay. Oh, very good. So, so David, you said earlier that the Lazaretto was uh, in operation for about 100 years. Yeah. What, what brought the Lazaretto to a close as a, as a quarantine station? Well, um, beginning in the 1880s, the federal government began assuming a greater share of quarantine and border protection responsibilities. Ah. So um, this is the era of the construction of uh, Ellis Island in Ah. New York Harbor, Angel Island in San Francisco Bay in the 1890s. But it was part of a longer process by which the federal government began to assert its own uh, predominance in um, certain fields, such as quarantine, which had been a, an exclusively local and state uh, jurisdiction before then. Um, meanwhile, as the federal government is taking over responsibility in the area of quarantine, there's a certain amount of inertia and bureaucratic um, territoriality in maintaining uh, the local quarantine but uh, one thing that has changed significantly since the Lazaretto was built in 1799 is the population of Philadelphia and the population of Delaware County had grown significantly and had spread out so that what had been the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. oh, of course, Tinicum Island, right. is now very close to – it's not thickly populated, right. but it's very close to areas that are much more populated than they uh. had been. Moreover – Real estate developers ah. in Delaware County had their eyes on this prime real estate that's close to the city. It's close to the city of Chester, which was booming, uh, shipbuilding city at the time. And uh, Tinicum all of a sudden is valuable real estate. But ah. nobody wants to live near a pest house. Ah. Okay. So local Delaware County politicians began um, very soon after the 1870 yellow fever outbreak, which I referred to oh, earlier yes. at the Lazaretto, began lobbying for the um, shutdown, for the closing of the Lazaretto and um, for its replacement mm-hmm. by 
a new facility, either a state facility farther downriver at the Delaware state line or a federal facility somewhere farther downriver. And uh, in the 1890s, eventually that's exactly what happened. The Delaware County politicians succeeded huh. in passing legislation in Harrisburg that shut down the Lazaretto after the 1895 quarantine season and um, replaced it with a new state quarantine facility in Marcus Hook, which is right on the Delaware state line. And meanwhile, um, two new federal facilities, one at the Delaware Breakwater at uh, uh, Cape Henlopen mm-hmm. and one on Reedy Island in, um, uh, in Delaware, were gradually replacing the functions that the Lazaretto had fulfilled. Oh, boy. So what happened uh, when it was shut down? Was it just left vacant? It was vacant for a few years. Mm -hmm. And then in 1898, some members of the Athletic Club of Philadelphia, which was um, an elite recreational leisure organization, decided that they wanted a a country home, essentially a country club, a place to retreat from the um, the heat and humidity and squalor of the city in the summer months, and that this now empty space along the river was would be just delightful. And so the um, they called it the Orchard, mm. and it was the summer home of the Athletic Club of Philadelphia from 1898 till about uh, 1915. And they had bicycle outings out there. They had fishing and hunting. They had they played lawn tennis, lawn bowling. They played baseball. Um, and they had all sorts of fancy banquets with uh, um, hired entertainment. It was really a... Um, a, a summer resort for Philadelphia's elite. And then in 1915, with the rumblings of war in the air, mm. war had broken out in Europe, and it was widely thought that the United States might be entering the war. Uh, a handful of members of the Athletic Club of Philadelphia decided that they wanted to... Um, they wanted to fly airplanes uh, on the river, and they wanted to teach other people to fly airplanes. Mm -hmm. So they bought some seaplanes, what they called flying boats, Wow! uh, and created one of the earliest seaplane bases in the United States at the Lazaretto. And uh, when the U.S. did enter the war in 1917, uh, what was then rebaptized Chandler Field was a an Army Air Corps training site for uh, seaplane pilots, and the um, the flight school and seaplane base remained in operation until 2000. Oh wow! Throughout wow. the rest of the 20th century, the Lazaretto was a seaplane base, flight school, and marina. And that's in large part why the physical plant, the main building, and several of the surviving outbuildings are still intact today because they were in use for such a long period. Every other, you know, seaport that had a quarantine facility, none of them were of the scale of Philadelphia's Lazaretto. Yeah. Uh, none of those survived. They've, um, they've all long since been uh, destroyed. But uh, this place was continually in use until 2000, and that's one reason why we're lucky enough to still have it around today. Wow. Jeff, you want to follow up with that? <laughs> I, my mind is kind of <laughs> I had to look it up. It's like right by John Hines, the, yep. the whole wildlife refuge. It's just on the other side of I-95 from okay. the John Hines Wildlife Refuge, yep. um, which is the, the, the other end of Tinicum Township. Yeah. So if um, there are Philadelphians listening to us right now, if there are people driving on 95 and Mm -hmm. they're there, I mean, is there any way for them to access the Lazaretto at this point? 
Um, I'm going to say a qualified yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they can look forward to much better access in the near future. Um, at the moment, I'm delighted to say that the Lazaretto is a construction site. Oh, great. Uh, great. Because restoration of the main building has been underway for quite a few months and is um, proceeding uh, proceeding rapidly. So if you went to the Lazaretto today, you would see construction fences. You would not be able to get up very close to the main building. Mm-hmm. You could walk around the edges of the site, and I give informal tours all the time to friends and colleagues <laughs> and interested parties, and we um, check in with the foreman at the construction site and say, how's it going? We're just going to walk around the edges. And um, so it's um, – I don't want to encourage throngs of people to <laughs> crowd on the site and uh, certainly not to get in the way of the construction, which is really our um, – something we've been waiting for for a long time. Um, but I do um, I do encourage people to appreciate this really unusual, um, dare I say, weird mm-hmm. uh, physical site. It's, it's the strangest combination of incongruous, um, archaic, beautiful, and mysterious. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, site that uh, you'll find anywhere in the area, and it's uh, it's right on the doorstep of the city. It's not yeah. far away at all. Yeah. Although it's it's off the beaten path, you would never you would never go there unless you were intending to go there. Right. And and the the question. So I'm going to ask you the leadership question now. Um, <laughs> so what does it take to you know, to, I guess, muster the kind of support that has been necessary to do, you know, reconstruction up to this point mm-hmm. and and right. and then I'm sure there are continued preservation goals. I mean what yeah. what is it what is it like to be a part of that kind of a movement, a very specialized movement? Well, um if I knew what it took, <laughs> I would have done it by now and it would have already <laughs> happened. Honestly, um I see my role as um, crucial but limited. Um, <laughs> I have – I'm a historian uh-huh. and, you know, it's my job to really roll my sleeves up and dig into the depths of the um, archival records and reconstruct the history in, in painstaking detail. And I see it as my job to um, – bring that history to life mm-hmm. and to communicate that mm-hmm. to a larger public. Mm-hmm. So um, my job is enthusiasm and passion and kind of mm-hmm. evangelism for this rich past which has been lost, which is essentially unknown mm-hmm. to almost everybody. And uh, But that's not enough. I think it's crucial. I think my, you know, sort of evangelical role is absolutely essential and um, I want to do the best job I can at it. And I have uh, written a book which which should be out from Johns Hopkins University Press within um, a year-ish. Can we get Jack White to give you a quote? On the book. <laughs> a jacket blurb yeah. that would right my yeah, my fondest wish my fondest wish um, who Set knows those Wharton undergrads on <laughs> yeah, that I know exactly who knows who knows it could happen uh, and I hope the book will make a difference and I hope you know I uh, make various public appearances and I just try to try to share my excitement with mm-hmm. uh, with people and show my my um uh, my main goal is to just get people out there to mm-hmm. the site, and mm-hmm. it'll be much easier once the restoration, yeah. the first phase of restoration, is completed. Um, but that, it takes more than that. Yeah. Yeah, and that restoration is it? Is that publicly private financed? Is that privately financed? How does um, how does that work? It's mostly publicly financed. The um, without getting too much into the weeds, the property itself is owned by Tinicum Township, okay. mm-hmm. the government of Tinicum Township. 
And the township stepped in to buy the property when it was threatened by development. And oh. um, essentially mm-hmm. the private developer wanted to demolish mm-hmm. everything. Um, the township bought the property in order to prevent that from happening, built a new fire station, which was controversial back in 2005, 2006, 2007. Um, uh, but that's done. And um, uh, a nonprofit board was set up to oversee the preservation of the rest of the site, the historic mm-hmm. buildings. Now, the township has raised a significant amount of uh, grant money to preserve the Lazaretto and to move their township offices into the main building. Mm. So now we have a future, a reliable, supportive, friendly tenant mm-hmm. uh, who happens to also be oh, the property good. owner. Mm-hmm. Um, in the main building, there will be occupying, you know, not even half of the main building, so there's plenty of room for other uses and historical interpretation. And it's really thanks to the efforts of Tinicum Township that we've gotten this far. Mm -hmm. We are also trying very hard to interest foundations and other philanthropies and individual small, medium, and large donors to contribute to the preservation effort so that our, um, our larger vision for the interpretation of the site, the historical exhibits, installations, and activities, um, recreational opportunities mm-hmm. can be realized. Mm. I'm glad you asked that leadership question because you know this is leadership in action on Sirius XM Radio. It's always Channel 111. <laughs> uh, David, how about uh, we have just a couple minutes and then uh, Jeff and I usually do what we like to call an after-action review, just reflect on the shows, and we'll invite you to chime in on that as well. But how about can you say a little bit to our listeners um, how they might um, contribute or be involved? or and, and we can even make that broader, just nationwide, what you might recommend to those who are in, uh, elsewhere in the country. Well, um I hope that everybody will uh, take a moment to think about uh, historic sites that need preservation in their own backyards. Yeah. Um, in the case of the Lazaretto, we have we have lots of plans and visions, and we're busy trying to drum up interest and lay the groundwork for for fundraising. There is a role we need uh, we need volunteers. We need um, donations, small and large. We have a website which is still under construction. Mm-hmm. If you go to thelazaretto.org, T-H-E-L-A-Z-A-R-E-T-T-O dot org slash volunteer, um, you will find a way to um, express interest in volunteering and also a um, an easy donation site. So um, we encourage listeners to uh, to go to that website. We're going to be transferring a lot of the um, historical information and images, et cetera, that are on other websites to that website on an ongoing basis and updating people on the status of restoration. But um, ultimately, the future of our efforts to preserve this amazing site is going to depend on the um, commitment of lots and lots of uh, ordinary people who say, this is a place that matters. Mm, very good. And your book is coming out, say, roughly a year is what you're hoping? I'm, I'm hoping uh, about a year from now from Johns Hopkins University Press. The working title is Lazaretto Ghosts, Epidemics, Immigration, and Quarantine at the Water's Edge. Oh, very good. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show when the book comes out. <laughs> very good. Wonderful. Well, David, it's really been such a pleasure to have you with us, and uh, we welcome you to chime in on our after-action review. So, Jeff, we had we had two guests, very from two different walks of life, two different mm-hmm. areas. Caleb Thornhill, who is Director of Player Engagement with the Miami Dolphins, and our own Professor David Barnes here at the University of Pennsylvania, who is um, on a mission to save the Lazaretto and who is just on the brink of publishing a book about the Lazaretto. So what stands out for you as you think back on both interviews? 
And you, I bet you think I can't draw a thread. I think you can, and uh, I have one too. Oh, you have all right. All right, I'll go. So I'll is go this competitive? First. Well, <laughs> of course, we're always competing yes, and collaborating. We yes, we are. <laughs> the spirit of leadership. So, um, the thread I would draw, yeah, is that you know, in David's case, mm -hmm. we are looking backwards to understand a part of our history. Um, as a as a city, as a mm -hmm. nation, um, and the way in which we interact with uncertainty, the way in which we interact with threat, the uncontrollable, mm -hmm. um, and and to try and bring that knowledge mm -hmm. forward into today. Um, what I take from our conversation with Caleb is his work is very similarly focused, right? In that I found I found that conversation about his work is director of um, player engagement for the Miami Dolphins, to be very focused on how we can um, both preserve and then enhance those qualities which are inherent within the individual, mm -hmm. um, take them out beyond the playing field, and um, really let them make an impact across multiple spheres of their lives. And and I will say, as, a, as an educator, that the comment... Mm -hmm that I will take back with me that, that Caleb made mm -hmm. is he said at one point, if I can't engage you, yeah. I can't educate you. Right. And if I can't educate mm -hmm. you, I can't empower you. I love that too. Right. right. And I, so that's my weaving together. That's so good, themes. Jeff. Thank All you. right. Well, I, I had a little different, but related take. Uh, I of course was very impressed by Caleb's and his comment about engage, educate and empower. Uh, he also talked a lot about servant leadership and spoke about himself as being on a mission <laughs> in order to uplift others and to, um, by giving, in turn, he is fulfilled and received in, uh, receives in that process. And David Barnes, in our second hour, uh, spoke about his critical <laughs> but limited <laughs> role in bringing the Lazaretto back to life mm -hmm. and spoke about that role uh, as an evangelist for the Lazaretto. So once again, a sense of mission. Well, and, and if I could add something yes. there, right? The That notion of servant leadership, I mean, in some ways that is one of the values the Lazaretto embodies. If you think about the intention yeah. of Philadelphia at that place and time right. and the fact that it was it was meant as much as service to those to the afflicted coming in right. as it was necessarily as of protection from epidemic. Right. Benevolent so. and charitable. Oh, yeah. oh, Thread, so threads abound. <laughs> threads abound. <laughs> but I said two, so I win. <laughs> Okay. And you got two <laughs> invitations to Mike Seems holiday party, and I only got one. Yeah, and since last week, four. Four? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let me take a moment to uh, thank our guests for joining us tonight, and that is Caleb Thornhill um, and David Barnes. Let me also thank our um, producer, Patty Hall, and our engineer, Tatiana Zamis, and of course, you, Jeff Klein, for being my companion here tonight. I'm Ann Greenhall, and this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Come back next week. Good night. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.